Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stall, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are more vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and let the people increase and become even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw it into the Nile, but let every girl live. Shall we just pray as Mike comes to speak to us? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege it is to meet as your people this morning. We pray, please, that you would speak uh, powerfully through Mike, your servant, as he brings us your word. Please help us uh, to have open hearts and minds to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, ladies. Uh, we've had tons we've been passing tonsillitis happily from one member of the family to another recently, and it also has produced conjunctivitis. So I'm feeling a little hoarse today, and uh, have a pink eye. But uh, hopefully, God will sustain me to speak for the next two hours. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. It's only two points this morning, but a really long introduction. Uh, A few years ago, a journalist called Freddie DeBoer wrote an article called You Can't Fake It. It's one of the most honest pieces of writing I think I've ever seen. Here's what he says. As an observer of culture and society, I've been increasingly preoccupied by a basic question. Why is everybody such a wreck? Why is everybody such a wreck? Why do people who have every reason to feel emotionally and socially secure still feel so deeply insecure? 
And then he goes on and talks about all the things that we have in the modern world that should make our lives feel sorted. We modern Western people have a standard of living that is frankly incredible by historical standards and actually by standards of most people in the globe today. We have so much. And yet, he says, I've known people in my life who were the most outwardly secure and confident, who never betrayed a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse, who projected cool at all times, who were quite popular, who received positive affirmation from others at all times, who were successful, who had money and respect, and yet the flow of their life revealed that inside they hated themselves fully and completely and bitterly. None of that stuff mattered. None of it could get at the core of self-hatred within. They could never fool themselves. I wonder if, if that's you. They could never fool themselves. Some struggle with a deep sense of inadequacy. You just never feel you're good enough. You wonder if you're just an imposter, a pretender, a senior man, older man, 20 years older than me. I, I looked up to him so much, godly man, very real. He once said to me, there came a point in my life where I felt so inadequate, I felt like I was paper thin. I felt like if I stood in front of a lamp, people would see through me. It's a terrible way to live, isn't it? What I'm trying to say here is that if we're being honest, we're all a bit of a mess. And in one level, that's absolutely fine. And the great news is that God knows all about it. And he loves you just the same. He really loves you, Christian friend. In fact, I think we could go so far as to say that God adores you. And God is for you. He's not against you. And he is cheering you on like the proud parent on the sidelines. Or he is sitting waiting for you to come to him and sit on his knee with all your problems and have a good cry. Or he's ready to rise up like a holy warrior, strong to fight for you and destroy all your real enemies, sin, death, Satan. So what do you and I really, really need this year? We need to know the Lord. Really know him, as Paddy beautifully put it, not just know facts about him, but know him to the extent that you can go and walk your dog with him. That's the key we need. According to the Bible, you cannot know yourself properly without knowing God. You cannot answer the most important questions without knowing God. And your heart cannot rest until you know him and find your rest in him. Without God, human, humankind are like fish out of water on the bank, gasping, flipping, tortured, out of their element. Without God, human beings are like a bird that swum into the sea, went too close, and is drowning, turning, its feathers wet, it's powerless, twisting and going under. Without God, we're like a hamster running on an endless wheel, pouring our energies into the immediate. It's exhausting, but we're never going anywhere. We can never understand who we are 
or what we are meant to be, we can never understand the reality of our own hearts until we know our maker who loves us like that. We need a transformation of our perspective, of our perception of him. The New Testament calls it being transformed by the renewing of your mind. But that's not just about information. The mind and the heart are completely linked in the Bible. C.S. Lewis wrote these words, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So if you know the Lord, you will see everything else differently. And that's why we're doing a new series today in this book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. And it's, is it on the screen? There it is. I forgot what it was called, actually. We came up with a great title. Know the Lord, Encountering God in Exodus. A wonderful Northern Irish scholar called Desmond Alexander has written on Exodus. And he says, Exodus is written for us to know the Lord. Because this book of Exodus is primarily about knowing God through personal experience. Knowing him. Uh, If you want to turn in your Bible, if you've closed it, turn back. Or if you've got your own Bible on your phone or whatever, Exodus 5 verse 2. Here's the question of the book. Exodus 5 verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Who is the Lord? And that Lord, you probably noticed there, is written in capital letters. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. It's a special, special word that. But the question, question, who is the Lord? And God's answer, turn over a few pages, Exodus 9, verse 16. Here's an answer. I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's the answer. Who am I? I'm going to tell you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, that I've demonstrated who I am. In other words, God is going to show us in this book what the true knowledge of him looks like so that it may be published abroad and accessed by everyone who asks. So Christian brothers and sisters here, friends at King's Church, will you pray, maybe even right now, that uh, through our times in Exodus, we will come to know the Lord? Will you pray that? If that were to happen, anything is possible. And if you're not a convinced believer in Jesus here today, we're so glad you're here with us. You know, this is just as much for you. This is written for you too. Will you you pray too? You might even pray the agnostic prayer. Lord, I don't even know if you're there. But if you are, help me to know you. So let's get going on this series. The root of the word exodus means the road out. The road out. And that's what the story is about. It's a story of rescue, a great rescue, a deliverance from slavery, a liberation. And the road out of Egypt, going to the promised land. And the first chapter sets the scene, and I'm going to highlight just two points today. The first is an unyielding slavery, and the second is an unchanging sovereign. Unyielding slavery, unchanging sovereign. Unyielding slavery. Now, have a look. Please open again, Exodus chapter 1. What is the first word in the book of Exodus? And you know when preachers do this, it's a trick question, don't you? What is the first word in the book of Exodus? Anyone? These. You're wrong. 
Don't you hate it when preachers do that? The first word in the Hebrew language is and. So if you want to take a big pen and write in the New Church Bible, above there, and, then you have to answer to Ben Archer, my colleague, who negotiated a great price on these Bibles. And, and some of the, um, some older or different versions, the Jewish version that translates it, puts that word in. And, now that is interesting. If you begin a sentence with and, it suggests a continu- continuation, doesn't it? This is like carrying on. And that's what Exodus is. It's a very much a continuation. So just turn back one page and see what it's continuing. Uh, the death of Joseph, that's the end of Genesis 50. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. It talks about his age and his generations. Verse 24, he says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath. So he's, he's still confident in the promise, and Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, and these are the names of Exodus begins. See, it's straight, it's seamless, it's going on. You know when a TV program, uh, TV series ends, one episode ends on a cliffhanger, and it's really tense, and you're waiting for what's going to happen next, and then the dreaded words come up to be continued. I used to hate that when I was a kid. Remember me and my brother watching something really tense. Maybe it was the A-team. We were so excited, and they'd just do it to you every now and then, to be continued. And we'd go, ah, now we have to wait till next Saturday. That's how Genesis ends, on a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? They're down in Egypt. We're supposed to be in the promised land. There's a great Joseph, but he's dying there. His bones are in the... What's going to happen next? Genesis ended there, so Exodus is is resuming the narrative. A great story, the greatest story ever told. That's what this is. So we need this book. We need to read it with Genesis in our minds, not separate it out like a separate thing. It's all part of a, a narrative, tapestry. Genesis was like Star Wars. Exodus is the Empire Strikes Back. Not that it's a bad book, because that was quite a weak film, but you get the analogy. And when we do see these things linked together, we start to see some amazing things. So, in light of creation, which is how Genesis began, we see that the Israelites are doing what God intended for humankind. And they are the first people to do so. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, They multiplied greatly, they increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled. Now, if we know Genesis, we really should be going, you know, whoa, not a red flag, a green light, or whatever. Hold on a minute. Fruitful, multiplying, increasing in number, filling the the land. In Hebrew, the word land is the same as the word for earth. So um, what's going on here is that the writer is telling us they're doing They're fulfilling what God wanted humanity to do right at the start, which was to fill the earth, be fruitful, increase, and and in number. So we see that they're doing what God wanted, and that's a great way to start. God is blessing them down in Egypt in spite of everything. But in light of the promises that God made to Abraham, promises of protection, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. You know, I'm on your team, Abraham. In light of all those promises, it really doesn't look like they're being protected, does it? 
It really doesn't. Because we've got this new king stands up and he, the history means nothing to him. And he's like, I'm worried about these guys. There's so many of them. They are a political threat. We're going to have to break them. And what happens in the rest of the chapter is grim, isn't it? State-sponsored genocide. Where is God now? Where is God now? He is strangely quiet at the beginning of this book. And that is all more, the more perplexing when we see how his people are being treated. Notice the unyielding slavery. Verse 10. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So he deals shrewdly. Verse 11, what's the strategy? They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. This is conscripted labor gangs. This is, you don't have a choice to be on these guys. This is like being in the chain gang in the prison. Send them out to break their spirit while they build stuff for us. But it didn't work. So verse 13 says, they worked them ruthlessly. Ruthlessly, they're, they're pressing down on them. And by verse 14, it says they made their lives bitter. What an expression that is. I wonder if you've ever tasted that. Life becomes bitter. any of the accounts of, of terrible, terrible slavery over the years, you can see this, you can taste this, what happens when oppressed people become bitter. And it, it gets worse. It gets worse because in verse 16, we read about a planned infanticide to control the population through the medical profession. That is evil, isn't it? They tell the chief midwives, when the women are giving birth, you go, and if it's a boy child, kill it right there. But spare the girls. Why is this? So that they can dominate them and assimilate them because the girl children will become slaves in their households and they will marry them in and they will impregnate them and they will eradicate all that's left of the Israelites' culture. This is evil. But it doesn't work because the midwives are too crafty. So they make up this story. Oh, you know, the Hebrew women are so vigorous. By the time we got there, the baby was born. Couldn't do anything about it. Sorry. <laughs> so the, 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 the iron boot comes down even more. And by verse 22, we have this awful, awful expression. Pharaoh gave this order, notice this, to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. So don't let's miss this. A dominant ethnic group is given state sanction, actually state command, to kill the baby boys of a minority ethnic group. You see what's going on at the beginning of this chapter? So, and, and they do that so that they can assimilate the people group through the females. And if you know anything about the history of the 20th century, you know something of what this looks like. The 20th century was a century of Adolf Hitler, of Joseph Stalin, of Pol Pot, of Idi Amin. It was the century of the gulag, the concentration camp, scorched earth, ethnic cleansing. It was the century of the Rwandan and Bosnian genocides. We know what this looks like. It, oh, no history of indigenous peoples can overlook the fact that they were treated just like this in North America, Australia, and other parts of the world. 
Chapter 1 presents a scene of absolute misery, unyielding slavery. Over in verse, to the end of the following chapter 2, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. It was a long period, unyielding. And to our eyes, let's be honest, this is absolutely inexplicable, isn't it? Why would God allow this? His people cry out, how long, how long? Now this is confronting us with one of the hard, hardest, maybe the hardest question of the Christian faith. Where is God in all the suffering? Is he real? Is he loving? Does he care? And I've got to say, we do not have all the answers. First thing we've got to say, we do not have all the answers. We shouldn't pretend to. But we do have some answers. We do have some answers. We do have an invaluable God's eye perspective on suffering. And ultimately we have Jesus Christ and his cross, which is where you resolve the tension. But the first thing we see here in Exodus is, plainly, sometimes God's people suffer. And sometimes that suffering is long and painful. And it appears inexplicable. Why why does he allow it? Now, the Bible's answer is is complex and nuanced and deep. We can't unpack it all today. That would take a long time. But according to the Bible, suffering is not necessarily a punishment. You've got to realize that because this is the way we, I think we often implicitly think, if someone's doing something wrong, they must deserve it for some reason. They're getting their just desserts. Now, sometimes that is true, but it's not necessarily the case. And often suffering is, is unjust, undeserved, or far beyond what it should be, impro- disproportionate. Well, we've got the whole book in the Bible about this question called Job. Job suffers terribly at the start of the book, and he's got these three friend, so-called friends who, who spend most of the book t- saying, Job, come on, you must deserve it. Think of something you did wrong. And the answer of the book is, nope, that's not the answer. Now, fasten your seatbelts. Because the answer we get in Exodus is actually really radical. You might find it offensive. But if we want to know the Lord, we need to get to this kind of depth. This is strong medicine. Some suffering happens so that God will get more glory in the end. Some suffering happens so that God will get more glory in the end, and that is good and wonderful. Because the Israelite slavery was so bad, in the end, their deliverance was far, far more wonderful. It was dreadful, but God had a glorious plan for it. The things ahead are far, far better than any we leave behind. Think about a beautiful tapestry, if you've ever seen one. From one side, the tapestry looks like a complete mess, doesn't it? All these random threads. But from the other side, a beautiful story is being told. And you and I are just threads. Hildegard of Bingham said, I am a feather on the breath of God. Those of you who knew Ruth Field, that was one of her favorite expressions, Hildegard of Bingham. I am a feather on the breath of God. Ruth, whose life was uh, shortened and restricted by 
cystic fibrosis and died in her 20s, developed a wonderful, beautiful spirit, a spirituality that was scarce. And she would say, I'm a feather on the breath of God. Now, this is starting to reorient our lives, isn't it? We need this perspective. If the whole purpose of the universe is to make me happy, then anything that challenges that is going to rock my world, right? And I will always be anxious and insecure if the whole purpose of the universe is to make Mike Tyndall happy. Because frankly, the universe isn't wired up for Mike Tyndall's happiness. It wasn't created for my glory. But I think you probably knew that already. What this is telling us is that our lives are not all about us. They're all about the glory of God. And if we can grasp that, strong medicine, it will change everything about us, including the way we suffer. Many of you will have heard of Joni Erickson uh, Tarda. She was a, 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 an athletic young woman. She was paralyzed from the neck down uh, by a diving accident as a teenager. She never moved anything below her neck after that. She writes, Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. We will stand amazed, she says, to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. She said, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I will stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we are now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Joni grasped something deep down that we all need to grasp. God is in control and he has far greater purposes than we can even imagine. First point, unyielding slavery. Second and final point, God is an unchanging sovereign. An unchanging sovereign. Now, I wonder how you tend to think of God. You know, how do you sort of, and you're uh, unconscious, or you're, 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 you're uh, if your mind was wandering, how would you think of God? What's your mental picture? Some kind of think of God as a distant, remote force. Others think of him more like a kind of benign Father Christmas, a granddad sort of character. A bit unpredictable, but he might help me out if I'm good. Others project the image of their own father. As a friend once said, 
I tend to think of God as a short, angry Scotsman with ginger hair. (laughs) Now, the Bible's primary image for God is of a great king. A great king. But I'm going to use the word sovereign for three reasons. Firstly, the word king might conjure up localized examples that are a bit silly, like King Henry VIII. Very fat, you know, totally corrupt, immoral, and abused his power, blah, blah, blah. Secondly, I would think the word sovereign kind of captures the, 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 the majesty and the grandeur better than king. And thirdly, most importantly, I needed a word that began with S. Because <laughs> it's slavery and sovereign. You spotted that already, I know. Now, God is sovereign, and that means that he reigns. In fact, the word sovereign has got the word reign at the end of it. I only noticed that this week. Nearly 52, and I've only just noticed that. Genesis showed this sovereign. What kind of sovereignism? Genesis showed God creating the world with wonderful beauty and harmony and creativity. All the beautiful things in this world that take our breath away. Then he rested to enjoy the fruits of his work. It shows him providing abundantly for humankind lavishing good things on them, creating wonderful opportunities for them and giving them a great dignity and purpose. It shows God as a being who loves passionately as well as a being of great and ultimate authority and power. A being who is supremely holy and a being who is supremely happy. God is happy. The Bible shows us a God who actively governs and sustains everything, but he's not a kind of puppet master. He gives humankind dignity and freedom. He even gave them free will so that they were free to go their own way and rebel against him and ruin the world that he'd made. That's how much freedom he gave us. But in in spite of that, he is patient and kind. And even when people rebel against him in an act of high treason, He is both holy and gracious. So as the holy one, the morally perfect one, he must address wrongdoing. He must sort out injustice. He must punish wrongdoing. But he also promises a deliverer and a rescue plan. This is the God sovereign that we're seeing here in the Bible. The Bible shows us God as a great king who wants to relate to us. He's not distant. He wants to relate to us. He relates to his people through treaties, which are called covenants, which are a way of formalizing a relationship. If you've been around in the last term, morning and evening we've been learning loads about covenants. A covenant contains promises and commitments on both sides. I promise this, I commit to do this, and you're doing it in return. And the closest thing we have in our culture is marriage, which is a covenant. God binds himself to his people in a remarkable way in the Bible. God makes promises. In Genesis, God even promises that when they break the promise, somehow he's going to find a way of taking the punishment on himself so it will be kept. Amazing he is. This is the king that we're talking about. Are you glimpsing what kind of sovereign he is? Faithful to his promises, unchanging in his character, but far, far above our understanding. Apostle Paul writes, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. 
Now, what this means is that we might not understand suffering, and it might not get a quick fix, but it does have a purpose, because there's a plan. The unyielding suffering of the Israelites was not a surprise. It was foretold centuries before. I'll read this for you. If you want to turn to it, it's on page 16. Genesis 15. This is God speaking to Abraham. And Abraham lived before 2000 BC, maybe about 2100, something like that, so that gives you an idea. So uh, Genesis 15, uh, as the sun was setting, verse 12, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and thick and dreadful darkness came over him, and the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. That's what happens in Exodus. Spoiler alert. None of this is by accident. God has a plan. What's the plan? To extend his kingdom throughout the whole earth. That's the plan. That's what the promise to Abraham was back in Genesis chapter 12. I will give you a great name, a great nation. You live in a great land. Remember all that. Why is he doing it? Through, so that through your descendants, every family on earth will be blessed. See, God will extend his kingdom through the whole world. It was repeated to Abraham several times. And then to his sons, underlined, highlighted, rubber stamped, signed, sealed. God means what he says. He always keeps his promises. He's going to fill the earth with his kingdom. Because he's an unchanging sovereign. So is there jeopardy to the promises in the current time? There is here. There's slavery. There's a new king. There's a dictator. There's genocide. There's male babies being killed. History often looks like no one is in control. It looks like the bullies and the dictators and the oppressors are going to get away with it. Exodus shows us that they will not. Ultimately, God has a plan to fill the world with his kingdom, which is... His people, in his place, under his rule and blessing. And nothing can stop that. The unchanging nature of God's great rule is seen in a subtle way at the start of the book. Just look at verse 6 again. It's so easy to skip over this. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But... The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. The writer is making a subtle point here. We mustn't miss it. A few words here which tell us about a period of time that's longer than the time which separates us from Henry VIII. It's all covered in what? A few words there. He recounts at the start the list of immigrants who went to Egypt and having got them there, he clears the stage for a whole new set of actors. Notice two phrases. Joseph died and the Israelites grew. This is a dual process that's always at work in the world. There's a silent dropping away, and there's silent growth in God's kingdom. It's always at work. Like three spades of earth thrown onto a coffin in the ground, the clauses progress. Joseph died. All his brothers died. All that generation died. Separate times, but a unified fate. They went down one by one, 
one by one, until at the end they were all gone. These two processes are always going on in the closest juxtaposition in our lives. There's a coffin in the bedroom upstairs, and there's a cradle downstairs in the front room. But in the midst of it, God's kingdom is growing. His purposes carry on. The great Joseph, the people's protector, lies dead and buried. What will happen now? All his brothers, death has swept them away. The whole generation is gone. What of it? They were just deposit boxes entrusted with the treasure of the kingdom of God for a little while in their generation. And so are you. They had their part to play in their day and generation and then they were no more. So will we be. We are all one day closer to death than we were yesterday. Are God's purposes dead because the instruments that serve them are gone? By no means. There's a monument in Westminster Abbey up in London to John and Charles Wesley, two brothers who did more to progress the kingdom of God in the 18th century than pretty much anyone else in the world except George Whitfield. And on that monument, there's a, stone, a beautiful stone. And at the bottom of it, just under the, bit, the lip that folds in, it says this. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. When one generation has passed away, there's another to take up the work. Exodus is going to show us how. The further unfolding of God's plans to save and bless the world awaits. Can we live in the light of this? In the light of God's greatness and our own mortality, Alexander McLaren was one of the greatest ministers and preachers of uh, the 19th century. He was a Scotsman. And uh, he, preached, he was a minister, pastor for more than 50 years. And he, he says this, Joseph might have said when he lay dying, well, perhaps I made a mistake after all. I shouldn't have brought these people down here to Egypt, even if I have been led hither. I don't see that I've helped them one step toward the possession of this land. God has a great scheme running on through the ages. Joseph gives it a helping hand for a time. And then somebody else takes up the running and carries the purpose a little further. A great many hands are placed on the ropes that draw the chariot of the ruler of the world. And one after another, the hands get stiffened in death, but the chariot goes on. We should be contented to do our little bit of the work. Never mind whether it's complete, smooth and rounded or not. Never mind whether it can be isolated from the rest and held up and people can say, oh, they did that bit entirely on their own. That is not the way for most of us. A great many threads go to make a piece of cloth and a great many throws of the shuttle weave a web. A great many bits of glass make up a mosaic pattern and there is no reason for the red bit of glass to pride itself on its fiery glow or the grey bit to boast of its silvery coolness. They are all parts of the pattern and as long as they keep their right places, they complete the artist's design. Thus if we think how one sows and another reaps, we may be content to receive half-finished works from our fathers and hand on unfinished tasks to those that come after us. It is not a great trial of a man's modesty if he lives near Jesus Christ to be content to do but a very small bit of the master's work. Amen? Alexander McLaren, what a preacher. You see how this is starting to reorient the way we think about our lives? 
And all those problems that we bring in, all our insecurity and anxiety, we need to think differently about ourselves and about God. One of my favorite bands, U2, one of their early albums had a lovely song called October. It's nearly all piano, actually. It only has a few words. Here are the words. October, and the trees are stripped bare. Of all they wear, do I care? October, and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but you go on and on. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come before your presence today in this gathering uh, where you are present by the power of your spirit right now and you're here in love to meet us and to bless us and to transform us. We ask that you'd help us to know you. Whom to know is life eternal. We ask that you'd help us to serve you in whose service is perfect freedom. Amen.